So we are nearing the end of our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think might be a disappointment to some people, and it might be a bit of a relief to other people. Uh, Ecclesiastes has kind of a pungent flavor. It can be an acquired taste for some. I think that's partly because the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is almost intentionally abrasive. His insights can work like sandpaper on our lives, rubbing off the pretty plastic coating that we use to gloss over the inconvenient truths we'd rather not see. His sobering but truthful observations grind away at the pleasing platitudes we tell ourselves. To read Ecclesiastes is to kind of enter a no-spin zone where the teacher is going to take us gently by the shoulders and turn us toward realities we'd really rather look away from. In this morning's text, the teacher is going to disabuse us of some of the happy myths that we have around work, about what work can provide for us, what it can't provide, and it might hurt a little bit. More specifically, the teacher is helping us navigate between the rocks of idealism on one hand and the rocks of fatalism on the other. And this guidance toward the middle way between two unhelpful extremes is called the golden mean in wisdom literature. It's pretty common uh, in wisdom literature. And the value of the golden mean is that it invites us to understand where we are on a given spectrum and adjust accordingly. Not every person is the same, and not every culture is the same. Our own individual temperaments will cause us to list toward one extreme or the other. Different phases of life push us toward one pitfall or another. Different generations in history will tend to err in one direction or the other. We need to apply wisdom to see where we are listing off course so that we can steer back sense and safety. Now, when I think of prominent cultural messages in our own day that nudge us toward the rocks, I think of slogans like this one. If you do what you love, you will never work a day in your life. How many people have heard that one or something like that? It's pretty common. It's all over the place. And it's so appealing Who doesn't want some magical job that is so satisfying and fulfilling and meaningful that it doesn't even seem like work? It's a beautiful thought. This idea that these soulmate jobs are out there and all we have to do is go find it and claim it. But these ideals have a way of backfiring. They can act like siren calls that can lure us into the rocks. This type of idealism is a real hazard of work, I think, especially among middle-class urbanites. Other populations are less susceptible to the hazards of idealism. It's very hard, for example, to envision my own Depression-era North Dakota farming ancestors working their way through the book, What Color Is Your Parachute?, to determine whether they were ideally suited for sustenance farming. And saying, hey, just do what you love, man, is soul-crushing advice for a 38-year-old line worker at McDonald's 
who has four kids to support and is two months behind on the rent. For those without middle-class resources, do what you love is flat-out unattainable. And for those with resources, it can be a recipe for entitlement, discontentment, and even shame. There's a built-in assumption in this myth that I'm entitled to work that I'm passionate about. Hello, entitlement. There's a built-in assumption that even honorable work that offers a living wage is not good enough if it doesn't intersect with enough of my personal interests. Hello, discontentment. And there is a built-in assumption that if the work I'm doing feels like work, I'm failing at life. Hello, shame. Maybe you've been burned by this myth already. Maybe you're a young person freshly thrust into the job market and you feel paralyzed by insecurity, anxiously wondering if that first job you accept is going to brand you as a winner or a loser. Maybe you've been fortunate enough to have logged years of steady employment in the same industry, but you're troubled and haunted by the thought that if you had hustled just a little harder or taken more risks in your career, maybe you'd have a better life. Or maybe the circumstances of your life, chronic illness, debilitating injury, lack of education, means that the real question is not, can I get work I really love, but can I get enough work to survive? Well, praise God, the words of the teacher can speak to all of us. It's true that he'll do it by exposing us to some unpleasant truths about work, but I think that before we're done, we'll find that the hope he ultimately points us toward is all the brighter and stronger. And this hope is deeply relevant to our labor, the efforts, the calling, the vocational purpose of every believer, whether or not she or he is drawing a paycheck at all. Meditating on these words of the teacher and looking at the world of work the way he looks at it has brought me an increase of joy, security, and wonder regarding the way God works in and through his people. I hope it will do the same for you. Our passage begins this way. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. This is a really sobering perspective on the unpredictable dangers of work. You can be minding your own business, doing absolutely nothing wrong, working diligently and faithfully, in fact, and really bad things can happen to you. Here we see a guy digging a pit. Maybe it's the foundation for a building. Maybe it's a drainage system. He digs it. He falls in. Another guy's doing demolition. He necessarily can't see what's on the other side of the wall he's breaking through, and he gets bitten by a snake. Who wants to be reminded that horrible accidents can happen while we're at work? Who likes to think about that? Well, none of us do, but the teacher is going to remind us anyway. Bad stuff can happen at work. 
Let's start with he who digs a pit will fall into it. If we move from the literal to the metaphorical, I can think of one type of pit that I fell into. It was a money pit. My husband Joel and I went in with some close friends and family members on a real estate investment. We were approved by a bank to take out an enormous loan and we purchased a large apartment building on the south side of Chicago. We prayed about it. We consulted people with a lot of real estate experience. We thought we were being wise and prudent. We invested not just money, but time, sweat, work, tears. We worked hard to make a go of this. But this was 2008, a time when a lot of real estate loans were approved that shouldn't have been. And frankly, we were over our heads. We didn't have the skills that we needed. So we dug that pit faithfully for a few years, and then we fell in. We had to sell the property at a huge loss, and it was a bit of a miracle that we were able to sell it at all before the bank foreclosed on it. We came close to bankruptcy. Uh, we came close to losing our home, and it's taken years to climb out of that pit. Pits happen. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. It doesn't take too much imagination to see the inherent dangers of stone quarrying and log splitting either. And even if you manage to avoid horrific workplace accidents, there's still the toll taken on backs and knees after 10, 15, 20 years of heavy manual labor. And there are other kinds of literal work hazards. I grew up in West Virginia, not in a coal mining town, but in a city that was economically dependent on two local chemical plants. I was horrified not long ago to hear of how one of the chemical plants in my hometown was knowingly abusing its factory workers, and incidentally, all the townspeople, by exposing them to horrific toxins that were causing birth defects and severe liver damage. The company had information about the dangers of this chemical risk for 18 years before they got caught. Moving on. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Sometimes the threat is a function of hazardous conditions, but sometimes danger comes from living creatures. No matter what kind of job you've done or where you work, you run the risk of demeaning supervisors, passive-aggressive co-workers, abusive customers, confusing corporate ethics, miserable working conditions. All of these take a toll. And even when success comes and it brings positive attention, it can also bring jealousy and sabotage. Let's look at this verse here. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So to add insult to injury, some people are taken out of the work game before they can even get started. The inexperienced construction worker is the most likely to lose an eye or a limb. The soldier who dies in his first military conflict doesn't live to collect veteran benefits. The promising star athlete suffers a debilitating brain injury. The career of the brilliant grad student is hobbled by her professor when she refuses his advances. 
Now, what's the point of facing into all these dismal realities? What good does it do us to be reminded of all the unexpected evils that can befall us when we're working? It's not even as if the teacher is trying to warn us about these dangers so that we can avoid them. The whole point is that we can't really expect to avoid them. This is what happens, the teacher seems to say with a shrug. He doesn't tell us the purpose of these grim observations, at least not yet. Now, a responsive listener might heed what the teacher has said and conclude that if our work lives are all that dangerous, maybe we'll be better off avoiding work or at least being as careful and cautious as possible. Not so, says the teacher. Having warned us against the dangers of work, now he pivots and warns against the danger of not working. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks, he says in verse 18 of chapter 10. And in verse 4 of chapter 11, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Avoiding work is not the answer. Sloth brings its own danger. Not only will we not move forward or progress in our lives without work, if we attempt to just sit still in hopes of maintaining the status quo, we actually lose ground. Work exposes us to the possibility of danger, but destruction comes and finds those who sit on their hands. What has been built up, whether through our own labor or the labor of others, things like roads or houses, they're going to start to decay around us if we're lazy. The good things we have will sink under our feet and start to leak over our heads. So though bad things may come to those who work, those, are, those who are too lazy or too cautious to work will certainly suffer. This same aura of near fatalism that hovers over all of Ecclesiastes comes to the foreground here. If the clouds are full of rain, the teacher says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Bad stuff is going to happen, the teacher reaffirms. But if you think about this too hard and take it too much to heart, you're never going to do anything. Now, I call this near fatalism because while the teacher is definitely emphasizing the reality that bad stuff happens, you can't predict or prevent much of it, there is also a positive call to action. We can't simply fold our hands and drift passively on the tides of fortune. We can't wait forever for the perfect job or the perfect time. Idealism is a danger, but fatalism is a danger as well and can lead to idleness or an excess of caution if we're not attentive. So where does this leave us, teacher? If work is fraught with danger, but idleness is not an option, if we were created to live lives of purpose and meaning, but our workaday lives can't be depended on to fulfill us, what then? Well, listen carefully. The teacher is about to give real guidance on how to live in a workday world fraught with danger. Verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 of chapter 11 is where the light begins to break through. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, 
for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Life is so uncertain, the teacher says, that you can't even tell where you're likely to fail and where you're going to succeed magnificently. Now, that might not sound like particularly helpful or hopeful news, but believe it or not, brothers and sisters, this is really good news. This uncertainty we live with, this inability of ours to predict or control our work lives might sound terrible, But oh my goodness, for sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, there is a wealth of freedom and joy packed into these verses. I think when we read these verses, we have the tendency to hear, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how things are going to work out for me. I don't know what work will prosper or where the hidden dangers lie. I don't know if I should take this opportunity or hold out for a better one that might not come. And with increasing awareness of uncertainty comes a rising tide of anxiety. What if I miss it? What if I miss it all? What if life passes me by and I have nothing meaningful to show for it? What if? What if? I don't know. I don't know. As fragile, vaporous human beings, filled with as much fear as we have hope regarding our lives, we tend to read fatalism and despair into these final verses. That's what we hear, but that's not what the teacher is saying. What the teacher is really saying is, God knows. God knows. God knows. And there is such tremendous freedom here. You can cast your bread out onto the water and still trust that you will mysteriously be provided for. You can share your resources with a crowd of people in a crisis without hesitation. Your Father sees you. Because God knows, because your life is in his life, you can sow your seed in the morning utterly confident that God is capable of working out his good plans through you. Not only that, you can continue to sow your seed in the evening also, after hours, not withholding your hope and your energy, but freely sowing the seed that God has entrusted to you. Why? God is the one with the life-giving plans for humanity, and he has called every one of his children to share in his work. To put it another way, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
This revelation came to God's people in Ephesus and then to us long after the teacher lived and died, but it speaks directly into the realities that the teacher observed. Realities of our human frailty and realities about the character of God. God knows we are a delicate and needy people. Apart from the gift of God, our own efforts and labor secure nothing. We can't save our souls by our own efforts. We can't find food or shelter for ourselves unless God provides it. And we certainly can't manufacture meaning and purpose in our lives. This good news frees us to work without fear, knowing that the priority is not my work, but God's work in and through me. I am God's workmanship. Because of God's work in and through me, I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to miss opportunities for leading a purposeful life. My work, my good works, have been marked out ahead of time. We don't always know, we can't know ahead of time what these good works that God has prepared for each one of us to do. But God knows. This can be tremendously freeing. God is responsible for the call on our lives. We are responsible to respond to him, and the work of entrusting ourselves wholly to God is our one true calling. God is responsible for literally everything else. God's responsible for the plan. God's responsible for communicating with us. God's responsible for the timing and the opportunities that come our way and the ones that don't. God is responsible for outcomes. All that is required for us to truly contribute to the life of the world is to walk wherever God leads us, sowing in the morning, sowing in the evening, letting God bring forth the fruitfulness of our work in our lives. There are two ways we can respond to this good news. The first is to imitate the teacher. Do what the teacher does by paying attention to life. Look not only at your own experience, but the experiences of those around you and examine them in the light of this teaching. If only God knows what our efforts will bring, if he is doing his work in and through us, if we are only responsible for following him and he is responsible for everything else, how has this played out in the lives of believers? What kinds of stories are written in the life experiences of those who are themselves the workmanship of God? There are a couple of ways, at least, to collect this kind of experience. The first, read your Bible. Whether you're super familiar with the Bible or just starting to read it, as you read, take a look at the lives of the people who participated in the work of the kingdom of God. There are hundreds of stories about the good works of the people of God, how God used people, ordinary people, usually in very unexpected ways, to do his extraordinary work. Think about read about the vast array of the occupations and non-occupations of the men and women God used in his plan. There were fishermen, there were kings, there were shepherds, judges, bureaucrats, teachers, the disabled, beauty queens, 
the mentally ill, craftsmen, merchants, housewives, musicians, migrant workers, priests, prostitutes, soldiers, beggars? Is there anyone in any station of life that God is unwilling or unable to use in his good and glorious plan for the world? Is there any danger whatsoever that we'll somehow be disqualified for the good work that God is calling us to just because we're in the wrong job or because we have no job at all? No. Not a chance. Now, there's another way that we can collect experiences like the teacher did. Pay attention to the stories of believers all around you, especially if you're under 40, Talk to believers who are over 40. Ask them about the ups and downs of their work lives and their lives as a whole. What pits have they fallen into? What efforts failed and what good works cropped up unexpectedly? Has the trajectory of their lives unfolded exactly according to their plans and expectations? How did they expect life and work to go? And what actually happened? If, for example, you envision a life devoted to ministry work in the church, talk to people in our congregation like David Whited or Nicole Sunga. David started off as a full-time chaplain and pastor and moved into the business sector. Nicole did it the other way around. She started out practicing law. Now she works in ministry. What's up with that? Ask them. My husband, Joel, was mowing lawns for a living when we got married, in part because he thought an office job would bore his socks off. Now he's in an office job, and his work is a lot of things, but it is not boring. Our church is full of fascinating stories. Ask to hear them. The second way to respond to the good news coming to us through the teacher, be generous with your energy. Invest yourself fully in the work of following Jesus and let the fruitfulness of your life take care of itself. Sow your seeds in the morning and at night in freedom and security, entrusting yourself and the work of your hands to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.